Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Here is a portrait of an old Newfoundland salt named Will Barnes. His memoir, entitled When Ships Were Ships and Not Tin Pots, delighted El Emanuel for its tales of wild sailors and their vessels. Here's a story about a Newfoundland sailor long since dead, but whom I have loved for his strength and humor and his deep love and knowledge of the sea. Though I never knew him in life, I've grown to know him in the tales he told in his memoirs when he was eighty years old. His name was Barnes, William Morris, after his father's cousin, the great English painter of the same name. He was born in 1850 and brought up in St. John's. He sailed every kind of craft afloat in the days when Newfoundland fish boxes were the hardest-driven ships afloat, when Oporto and Alicante were home to our sailors, and when Rio knew them well. Barnes introduces himself. My head is sculpted all inch over. Behind and in front, on top and all, I've been struck by a hammer that knocked in my skull and shot out the back of me head. There's a hole gone through from the right side of my cheek and out through the left side, and a tooth gone with it on both sides. It was caused either by a bullet or a piece of shrapnel. I don't know which, because I didn't have time to run after it. You'll find a mark on the back of me left hand where a fella nailed me down with a sheaving knife to the cover of a sailor's chest. I had a great mind to stick it back in his belly. If I'd done right, I should have, but I changed me mind. I have only a few little tattoos on me and half a hanker on me left arm, which would have been finished, only I got a heavy kick on the backside from me father, and the anchor never got finished. One of the flukes broke off in a squall. I've been in every bloody rig this afloat, fore and afters. Full rig ships, brigantines, barkentines, topsail schooners, jackass brigs, steamers large and small, a decoy duck during the war, and once I made a short journey in a horse and carriage in a gale of wind. In December 1875, the ship Silver Sea, Captain James Day and mate Will Barnes, put out from Alicante with a load of salt bound for St. John's. New Year's Day found them off the southern end of the Grand Banks. The wind blew, then calmed, then blew again, a strong head breeze. They beat back and forth from Cape Race to Saint-Pierre, and as they were getting more and more fed up with it, there came a howling gale. Well, says Barnes, we'll have to take off the topsail and reef the mainsail if it comes any worse. We won't round the Cape this way. It did come worse. The heavy-laden silver seal was railed under, making three miles an hour and well off course. The glass plummeted, and it began to freeze, ropes and rigging stiff as boards on their myriad of sails. "'We needn't get frightened till daylight,' said Barnes, the rate we're travelling. And hardly had he said it when began a hurricane of wind— Canvas reefed hastily, shouts and orders in the midnight darkness, and a growling, smashing sea knocked in the galley, broke the skylights, and almost carried the helmsman overboard. Then they hove to. 
Of course it got worse, else this wouldn't be a story. It got worse all through the long wet day. At dark, the crew took off the jib and the upper topsail and clued up the foresail. Keep a sharp lookout, the captain warned Barnes, and all the black night he stood watch, peering ahead and around. Suddenly to the helmsman he sang out, Look, by heavens, breakers, I see them plain. It was the dreaded shingle head southwest of Cape Race. Barnes roused the captain. All hands were called out of their sodden sleep. They stumbled around half-conscious, tore at the frozen ropes, loosened topsail, and sheeted it home. Now the thing was, said Barnes, will we have room to come round and get stern in before she strikes? Fateful minutes, then a shout. She's clear! A near escape. They sigh relief. The skipper says, we'll fetch up around Cape Pine, on the west side of Trapassi Bay. Ah, we'll never sight Cape Pine with this wind, Barnes told the skipper. We'll hit Powell's head. Half an hour later came the helmsman's shout, Look there, under our lee bow, breakers again, breaking mad. Urgent terror in his voice, the captain said, Must be Powell's. Barnes, keep cool, we're in Mutton Bay and we can't get out. Well, that was a situation. Mutton Bay, at the top of Trapassi Bay, wasn't wide enough to maneuver the ship, so full of rocks and reefs as to attempt an anchorage almost suicidal. Keep cool, indeed. The Silver Sea did her master's bidding. She came round, head pointed straight for a jagged reef, seas boiling mad, and then she cleared, stern into the wash. She tore up Mutton Bay as if she meant to run clear up on the rocks, waiting to rip her to kindling. The anchors went out precisely the right second, exactly the right length of chain following, and she brought up clean, with no engines, only miles of stiff, wet, billowing canvas. Twenty-foot seas rolled down over them, rocks astern foamed madly, her bow plunging under, then rising as the chains went taut. They prayed the chains would take the strain, and that the windlass would hold. Now it was dark again. Fires from those watching on land gave them courage, though they knew that if the ship went, the seas and rocks would claim them too. The night wore on. Barnes went below and took from a tin his mate's certificate and put it in his pocket, for being parchment it would resist the water and tell a rescuer that this mangled body was once Will Barnes of the Silver Sea. And then, as if by the hand of God lightly laid, the wind slackened, only for a moment, but long enough for those master seamen to beat it out of the bay to safety. Now in St. John's, people were just going to church when the news flew around. A big gale yesterday, a barkentine looking like the Silver Sea anchored on the back of Trapassi. If the chain's parts, none will be saved. A message then came from Trapassi people. Ah, oh, we stayed on shore all night waiting, but when daylight came, the ship was gone. They must have broken their hawser, the chains must have sawed the wood down to the water, and the ship must have sunk with all hands. It was night, three days later, when the Silver Sea put into St. John's, says Barnes. I got home late, <laughs> and there was me wife sitting there mourning for me. She thought I was a ghost, but I gave her a smug and one thing and another, and that was the end of that. Once, though, he really frightened her when he came in with the brig Plymouth, of which he was skipper. A day or two earlier the wind had freshened, and he went forward to take in the sails. The mainsail swung around, hit him on the jaw, and split him from lip to chin. 
He swore and held his jaw together with his hand until he found the mate and cook and demanded that they sew him up. But quaking at the sight, they refused. So he got a needle and thread and a piece of leather and with neat overhand stitches sewed himself together. He fixed the job with sticking plaster and friar's balsam. And then he wound bandages around his head and that is how he appeared before his wife. The doctor said he'd done as good a job as a surgeon. Of the more disreputable incidents in Barnes' life, let us not talk. After all, what sailor worth his salt hasn't painted some seaport red, or gone slightly berserk with the heady freedom of dry land and a release from danger? But once he almost caught it. His skipper was a drunken sot, arrogant too, and one night in a foreign port, as Barnes and the cook were in the galley, they heard him fumbling his way on board. And Barnes said in disgust, Ah, grease the ladder and let the old bugger go overboard and drown. Next day, the skipper, having heard this remark, hailed Barnes before the English consul, demanding he be punished. Barnes turned to the skipper and bellowed out, Where was you when we were in the breakers off the coast, and I had to put sail on the ship to drive her off the rocks? In your bunk, drunk, and I stood on the bridge for thirty hours without food or sleep. Take away my certificate? Not you and the skipper beat a hasty retreat. Another time, heading for St. John's from Bermuda with a ballast of stone, they ran into a storm, and the very same skipper refused to shorten sail. The ballast shifted, and the ship began to list sharply to one side. "'We got to do something quick before another sea catches her,' warned Will Barnes, "'else she'll go bottom up. We got to cut her masts and cut them quick.' So he crawled along the deck, unable to stand upright with that list, and then he balanced on the bulwarks outside to reach the mast. One eye on the seas, one on the job at hand, Barnes began to chop, crouch down, grab the shrouds, and wait for the sea to go over him, and then chop again, and when the mast went down they had to crawl into the hold and right the ballast. All night it took them, Barnes leading the effort, and then he discovered that the skipper was full to the chin, as he elegantly put it. And that did it. Barnes took over. They rigged a sea anchor, and the ship swung to it fine, and then the crew hove ballast again until they could barely move. The vessel was by now a wreck, so that when a steamer hove into sight, the crew signaled and full sea running clambered into the lifeboat. Still on board, Barnes turned and with a sick heart set fire to his ship, and then he too went overside. Well, Everything went wrong with the steamer that rescued them. It took eight days to reach Hull in England, by which time the steamer itself was almost in two pieces. Barnes went passenger on a ship going to St. John's, and it took 75 days to make the voyage. The water gave out after 60 days, and they drank the cargo of Irish porter until they decided it was more pleasant to die of thirst. And so they got home, and Barnes walked into his house with his belongings tied into a bandana. All that agony and nothing left. But his wife said to him, Ah, what odds, as long as you didn't lose yourself. When he was well over sixty, the First World War started. Being in England at the time, he wore down the entire admiralty until they accepted him into the British Navy. He was shipwrecked three times, and just as the war was ending, the little fishing boat dressed up as a decoy got a direct torpedo and disintegrated under his feet. 
At sea, Barnes was a great man, but on land he made a mess of things. He couldn't live the cramped, confined life of a landsman, and after his wife died he came less and less ashore. And then, waiting in Cardiff for a ship, he fell in love. The crusty, hard-living sailor met a woman who tangled herself so inextricably into his life that he never forgot her. She was a lady, he said, fine and lovely, educated and witty, and she fell in love with him, too. She knew the strength and poetry of him under the salt-caked skin. That they never married must have been a grief to Barnes, for twenty years later, as he writes his memoirs, he is talking of her as if he'd loved her only yesterday. Whatever fate waited for her, Barnes never knew, for she simply disappeared. The rumor was that she was shot as a German spy. Somehow, that's all of a piece with the rest of Will Barnes' story. He knew the best of life, from the old Newfoundland boxes, through the graceful clipper ships, down to navy ships he so aptly called tin pots, in which he spent the last years of a wonderful career. He had the sailor's religion, a clear conscience and a knife ready to cut the lines at a moment's notice. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next episode, in which El Emanuel recalls the visit to Newfoundland of a shipload of wealthy American dignitaries, come to watch, so they thought, the laying of the first underwater cable to Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm.